Soul City Church, Jarrett Stevens here, one of your lead pastors. And Gene uh, and I and the kids are using this time this month to kind of pull back and pull away and be together. And uh, while we're gone, we wanted to bring in some amazing voices to speak into our church and to speak into your life. And today, I am so excited to introduce you to Charlie Dates. Uh, Charlie is a pastor here in the city of Chicago. In fact, he's been the senior pastor of Progressive Baptist Church for the last five years, historic and influential church here in Chicago. And Charlie is a dynamic preacher and communicator. And what Charlie doesn't really know is that I've been stalking him online for the last couple years. Uh, he has an amazing, amazing family, and his kids are some of the cutest kids in the world. And he is an incredible husband and father. And I think you're going to find him to be a real gift to our church today. So it's a real treat and real pleasure to have a local boy, Charlie Dates, here with us today. So can we welcome Pastor Charlie Dates? Can we show him some Soul City love right now and welcome him up as he comes to open God's Word to us today? Let's welcome Charlie Dates right now. Well, all right. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'm, I am most happy to be here. I, I just looked over at our team and I saw the prettiest woman in the whole wide world walk in. I really want to flirt with her um, <laughs> at this moment. And yeah, I'm sure you're probably wondering who am I talking about. My wife just walked in the room and uh, I'm a much better preacher. And Charlie and Claire are here too. Hey, <laughs> Charlie Ways. Well, what a privilege it is uh, to be here with you today. This is the third service today. And if you sit there and sleep on me, um, there's a special place uh, that the Lord has reserved for you for uh, <laughs> sleeping on the preacher today. I do want to express my sincere and profound appreciation to your pastors, uh, Jared and Jeannie. want to thank them for uh, this kind and undeserved invitation. Good to meet you. We've been trying to work it out for a little bit for me to be here. And, uh, and I'm glad to be able to be here today to see your faces. I've heard great things about you as a church. And, uh, and I'm glad to be here. Also thankful for Nancy Beach and for her ministry uh, to us today and to all of the staff. Uh, very kind and hospitable. Uh, to us. Listen, I want to get to the word today. You're in a campaign uh, building a new church. It's called For the Love, if I'm not mistaken. I, I want to talk about love today. First John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Uh, I also want to introduce, I didn't come by myself today. You never know, you go to new places, if people are going to get with you, if they're going to like you, if they're going to say amen, if they're just going to look at you funny. And so I've learned never to travel by myself <laughs> in that regard. And today, uh, Brother Burgess Island uh, from our team is here. Aaron Moore, our a new resident for the Historic Black Church Renewal Project is here. Our director of operations, E.J. Bird, is here, and our husband, Mr. Bird, uh, is here, and one of our associate pastors, Reverend Ray Hawkins, is here. All of that to say, if you don't say amen today, <laughs> that's all right. Um, I brought some people with me who will, <laughs> and they will. First John chapter 4. Beginning at verse 7, I want to read into your hearing uh, all the way down to verse 13. When you got it, say, I got it. All right, it's on the screens. That's why you didn't say anything, I guess. Um, here is how it reads from the New American Standard Bible. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. 
By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And all the people said amen. Amen. Will you bow in a word of prayer with me, please? Gracious and eternal God, our Father, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for the help and the hope that is ours in his name. And I ask you now for preaching power. I pray for physical strength and spiritual energy that you will help me in this moment to preach the truth, to do so clearly and concisely and compassionately. I'm asking you now, Lord, to grant your people listening ears to the end that we will love you more and that we will love one another more by the time we're done today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. John's argument is clear. Lovelessness is godlessness. When I lived at 906 College Court at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I was trying to woo this pretty young girl. I took a Shakespeare course Uh, to figure out how to talk to her in language she had not previously known. (laughs) Many have sought to define and describe love, and Shakespeare did it this way. I caught her uh, one uh, evening just as dusk was superseding dawn. It was that almost melancholy time of day. I looked her in the eyes and I said, love is not that which alters when alteration it finds. Neither does it bend to remove with the remover, but it is an ever fix it mark, which look at the pun tempest and remains unchanged. (laughs) Many have sought to define and describe love, but if you this morning are with me looking for the truest, clearest, most potent definition of of love in human language, we need look no further then 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Because in this, John pens the clearest definition of love anywhere. And in doing so, he urges upon us that his explanation of love is not so much for utility as it is our identity. In other words, what John writes isn't just something for us to do. It is who we are. So potent is John's translation of love in human language that in its description is both our identification as children of God and the verification that we are presently in relationship with God. He says to us that the articulation of our love for God is not found in the superlatives of spoken sentiments or in how we sing on a Sunday morning. But the articulation of our love for God is found in the expression of our actions. To claim that we know God 
to evidence that we are in relationship with him is to at the same time manifest the invisible presence of God in our everyday treatment of one another. I'll say it again. John's argument is simple. Lovelessness is godlessness. That seems to be the tenor, the tone, even the texture of our passage today. When you rub against 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, you can tell that John is arguing that the nature of God ought to dictate the character and behavior of his people. That what is in him and about him ought to be in us and about us. And the question becomes, since love is an action word, what does love do? Well, I'm glad you asked. First John chapter four, verses seven through 13 is neatly outlined by the affirming designation ascribed to the recipients of this letter. Twice, John addresses the original audience as beloved. Thereafter, he levels what looks like twin admonitions distinguished by differing motives. He tells us that we ought to love one another because love communicates the very character of God. And then we ought to love one another because love confirms the residence of God in our lives. A cursory reading of John's epistle reveals that he is consumed with this idea of godly love. He uses a stem for love in the original language of the New Testament more than 30 times in this short epistle. It is as if his pen is dripping with the ink of love, as though the subject of almost every other sentence is love itself. And he writes to us according to this conviction that love is more than a constructed idea. It's not something that God has left up to us to define and describe. But love is a controlling and redemptive force. And that when we love one another, we do something special. First of all, John argues that when we love one another, we communicate the very character of God. That people cannot see God with their eyes or touch, them with, touch him with their hands, but they can understand who he is by how we love one another. In 1 John chapter 4, Verse 7, it feels like John has abruptly shifted the continuum of his conversation. When you read the Bible, you want to read it in context, understand what happens before the passage you're reading and after the passage you're reading. When you start at verse 1 of 1 John chapter 4, John is arguing for a method, a way that we can discern accurate spirit from God. And those that perpetrate and fake as though they're from God. In other words, there are in every church real believers and perpetrating believers. Genuine Christians and fake Christians. And how can we tell the difference is what John argues at the beginning. And, and you can tell the difference by this litmus test. To tell the genuine Christian from the fake Christian. Watch the consistency and potency of their love. That in watching the way someone loves, you can tell if they are the genuine article or fake. And knowing, however, that you and I could get caught up in discerning spirits and trying to judge who's right and who's not, John quickly admonishes the early church as he does us in this passage. While you are discerning and judging, be quick to love. 
Because your discerning and judgment can be mistaken for something else. It can quickly corrode your heart into a sense of self-righteousness. But you and I are called to love one another. And in loving one another, we actually literally communicate the very character of God. And John knows that left up to human reason, you and I would try to define love ourselves. If we're honest, we can feel that in our culture today. That there are people who are trying to rewrite the narrative of love. To tell us what love is and what love is not. And John does not leave it up to human eyes or hands to describe what love is. He quickly gives us an exposition of what love really is. And you can boil it down to this statement found in verse 8. God is love. He does not say love is God. But he says God is love. In other words... Love is so selfless, so redemptive, and so powerful that when you find it and you trace its trails, you follow it to its roots. When you stand in that place, you'll land in the very presence of God. When we love, we communicate who God is and that we belong to him. And you can feel that in John's language. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Can you, can you feel it there? Beloved, let us love one another. In, in other words, it's as if John is writing, dear loved ones, let us love one another. He does not write, dear hated ones, let us hate one another. Or dear hurt ones. Let us hurt one another. But it is if John is saying those of us who have been loved by God ought to in turn love other people. And the logical inference is to ask why. Why is it that we ought to love? He says because love comes from God. And in one sense Paul might argue in 1 Corinthians eleven twelve that all things Come from God. But John clarifies this. Love is not one of many things finding its heritage in God. But rather love is the primary attribute of God. It comes from God. This is what scholars who study the original language of the New Testament would call a genitive of source. It's important. It, it, it means that God is the owner and distributor and possessor of Love. In other words, if you get love and you give love, it can come from no other source. Real love has to come from God. And this, friends, is a not so subtle nod against every whimsical and depraved and carnal definition of love for which humanity is infamous. Everybody shouting love wins in talking about real love. Everyone claiming that what they're doing with their lifestyle in the name of love is not talking about genuine love because real love has to come from God. And that may hurt your feelings. It may hurt mine. It may rub the people we know and love the wrong way. But the word of God associates the benefactor of love with the practitioner of love. We cannot take language that heaven has copyrighted and abuse it for our own uses. Real love comes from God everyone who loves and has been born of God knows God 
This is the evidence that some of us are actually of God and others of us are anti-God. Those who are born of God share this attribute with God and from God. In other words, this text gives us epistemological certainty that God is our father and we are his children. You can know for sure that God is your father. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to take another test. This is it. You, you share this attribute with him. And this is important, friends, because there are many ways in which we can never be like God. This is what scholars call a communicable attribute of God. But there are some incommunicable attributes of God. In other words, God is some, some things you and I will never be. For instance, relax. God is omniscient. You are not. You might think you know everything. And you ever met people like that? That before you can get the sentence out of your mouth, they, they know exactly what you're talking about and have known it for all time and eternity. But no matter how much you think you know, you will never be like God in that he is omniscient. God is also omnipresent. That means he's not limited by time and space. He is everywhere at the same time. You and I wish we could be in more than one place at one time. But although we are fascinated with ubiquity, we will never be omnipresent. God is omnibenevolent. He never does anything wrong, has never had a bad thought. Try that on for size. <laughs> on my best day, friends, if I'm honest with you here, on my best day, when I'm doing what I think honors the Lord, evil is still present. And even my good can run the risk of becoming evil spoken of. But everything that God has ever done and everything that God will ever do is all good. We cannot be like God in that way. But, but we can be like God when we love. When we share this attribute from him, we show forth to the world that we are his children and he is our father. And I can say this from my own lower, lesser, lighter experience. I want my children to be clear that they come from me. And I want people who meet them and see them to have something, some semblance of me when they see them. Any fathers here today? Any fathers here today? No, that's the real question. Any fathers here today? You, it's kind of strange if your kids never look like you, talk like you, act like you. You might want to start asking some questions. I remember, true story, we were praying. My wife is here, she can tell you. When, when Kiersey was pregnant uh, with Charlie, we would pray uh, every night. I'd put my hand on her womb and I would pray and she would pray. We would pray wonderful things that, that God would make uh, this boy with blazing intellect, that he would give him a heart and compassion for his fellow neighbors, that, that he would uh, love his fellow man. All of the beautiful things we should pray, but, but by the end of every prayer, I, I had a carnal aspect to my prayer. I would pray that God would let this boy look like his mama. <laughs> you see, when you marry up, you, you want your kids to have a good shot at life. <laughs> Decent prom date, beautiful spouse. And so I pray, and I knew it was a boy. She did not. The Holy Spirit is real. He led me in that way, and he, and, he, and he made it clear it was a boy, and the ultrasound technician confirmed it. She slid a little picture in an envelope and handed it to me, and I, I would pray, dear Lord, let this boy look like his mama. 
And when he was born, I remember when they lifted him up, I looked at Kiersey and I said, oh, he's so beautiful. I could not fight the tears. He, he looked like her. It, it God had answered our prayers. He's such a handsome little fella. And as the weeks and the months and the years went on, I, I started to wonder if I had lingered too long in that prayer. <laughs> he looked so much like her. I, I wanted to have something of me. In the picture, about a year and a half ago, I think it was, he slid into our bed between us, which is his custom, and Kiersey got up before us, and she, she saw something, and she pulled out her phone, and she snapped a picture, and on her way downstairs, she texted me a picture. So the first thing I saw on my smartphone when I got up was, was a picture of he and I sleeping next to each other, but he wasn't just sleeping any kind of way. He had slid his, his right arm underneath the pillow. He had nestled his head off to the side, opened his mouth a little bit, drooled just a tad bit, and put his left arm over his head in this regard. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you until you know that's exactly how I sleep. <laughs> he and I were laying right next to each other in the same formation. That's like Beyonce. In the same <laughs> formation, in the same position right there. And it was proof. My DNA is his DNA. My blood runs through his veins. I didn't have to teach him how to do that. He knew automatically that it was a comfortable pose to sleep in. <laughs> Listen to me, friends. You can look at him and you can say he's not his daddy, but he sleeps like his daddy. <laughs> he's not his father, but he walks like his father. He's not his father, but he's already using words like his father. When the world looks at the church, they ought to see our love for one another and say, they're not God, but they look like God. They're not God, but they talk like God. They interact like God. They love like God. And the converse is true. If in your church there is no love, and if in your heart there is no love, then there is no God. You are not from him if you do not love as he loves. Friends, while John is explaining to us that this is the way that love communicates the very character of God. He pauses in verse 9 to say that this is how love works. You can see how love manifests itself. In verse 9 he says, by this the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might have life through him. The incarnation, God becoming flesh, John argues, is the unveiling of God's love for you and I. In other words, the love of God was manifested among us in this way. God sent his only begotten son. If you ever wonder if God loves you, find a cross and gaze upon it. If you ever wonder if God loves you, think about Jesus and come to the conclusion that because God sent Jesus, he loves you. This matters because God had sent many people before. He sent Moses, didn't he? But Moses didn't get to take the children into the promised land. He sent Joshua, and although Joshua caused them to cross the threshold of the promised land, they never fully conquered it all under Joshua. He sent David, but David had a Bill Clinton philandering problem in the Oval Office. And instead of improving the throne, the throne got worse. He sent Jeremiah, but Jeremiah lamented. He grieved the day he was born. 
He sent Isaiah, but Isaiah had a profanity problem. He was a man of unclean lips. He sent Hosea, but Hosea couldn't get the whole analogy right. And so finally, round about Matthew chapter 1, God says, forget it, I'll become a man myself. And he wraps himself in the likeness of sinful humanity. Comes down through 40 and 2 generations. Is born in, in a barn in Bethlehem and becomes one of us. And you wonder if God loves you? Look at Jesus. Of course he loves us. Jesus is the manifest love of God. Jesus is the palpable expression of love not previously known. Jesus is the unambiguous affection of God for us. Jesus is the obvious exhibit that God cares about us. The incarnation is God talk in human language. It is the speech of heaven in human vocabulary. Jesus is the dialect of heaven in human prose. He is the clearest, realest evidence that God so loved us. Jesus is proof that God puts his money where his mouth is. And you wonder, does God love us? Of course he does. He sent his one and only son. He is unique in a class all by himself. I like it the way Gardner Taylor puts it. He says, after you get Jesus and you were to go to God and ask God for more, God will pull his pockets out like a pauper and say, I got nothing left to give you. God emptied heaven's endowment upon earth to give us everything that we lost in Jesus Christ. He is all that heaven had. So that we could gain all that earth lost. And, and it would be one thing if Jesus were just a cool gift from heaven. If he somehow was an impotent novelty. But the language of our text is clear. Jesus is sent of God that we might live through him. Listen to the trail of the idea, friends. He is from God for us so that we might live through him. Where he comes from is all powerful. Who he comes for is powerless. And he becomes the agent through which the dead might live. In other words, you aren't living until you have met Jesus Christ. You do not have the strength and the power to enjoy the abundant life until you have, be have become known by Jesus Christ and have come to know Jesus Christ. And in this way, John argues for the evangelistic thrust of our faith. This love is not anthropocentric. You notice it in the text in verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love does not have human beings at the center. It did not start with us. I hear people say from time to time, I found God and I'm itching to say to him, you didn't find God. God wasn't lost. You were lost and God found you. And while you were lost, his love was chasing hard after you. He loved you. So he sent Jesus to come from you. And, and here it is, even when you were not thinking of him, not that you loved him, but he loved you. And in this, we feel the redemptive nature of the love of God. 
it uses this word, and I don't, I don't mind using biblical language. I think Christians need to learn biblical language. I'll stand up at our church and say this anytime. It may be a word that you've not heard, propitiation, but you need to learn the word, propitiation. That's my cue. Give me two seconds, bro. I'm going to be done in just a moment. Here, here, here we go. Propitiation. Propitiation. It's an Old Testament word that means literally to make an atoning sacrifice as a substitute. The high priest would put his hands on an animal and transfer the sins of the people onto that animal. And he would slay the animal and the guilt of the people would roll over one more year to the next day of atonement. And this would happen year upon year, looking forward to the day that the real sacrifice, the real propitiation would come. And the Bible makes clear that when they put nails in Jesus' hands and nails in his feet and a spear in his side and a crown of thorns upon his head, this bloody faith we have when he shed his blood on our behalf, redemption was accomplished. Our sins were canceled out and Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins. But it gets better now. He's not just the sacrifice, but he's the priest who administers the sacrifice. God became the supply of his own demand. He said, this is what I ask of you, but this is what I provide for you. And in this way, when we love one another, we communicate the character of God. But we also confirm that the God whom we've never seen with our eyes actually lives inside of us. You can play. <laughs> he actually resides in us and the intangible has become touchable the invisible has become seen the one whom the world has not known you can fill him inside your heart this is it friends I, the boys ministry leader at the church, taking the little boys, showing them how to fly kites. And the way you work it is you let the kite up and you start running so that the wind picks up the kite. And the higher the kite goes, the stronger the currents of wind are to the point where one little boy was flying his kite and he could not see it. Another boy came in. He was running late. He said, what are, what are we doing? He said, we're flying kites. He looked up. He said, oh, I don't see a kite. And the little boy flying the kite said, I don't see one either. So well, how do you know there's a kite up there if you don't see it? He said, every... Now and then, I feel this string pull. Listen, friends, you might not see God, but every now and then, you ought to feel him pull. You ought to feel the love of God in your heart for people around you. You ought not be so selfish that the world revolves around you, but rather that he lives in you and is causing you to love your fellow man. I know that was a bit much for some of y'all, but I'll be honest with you. I can't talk about my Jesus without feeling something. I, I can't speak of my Lord without feeling him moving in my heart. And I'm about to sit down. I'm going to pray that, that you would experience this love and that you would communicate this love for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Father in heaven, we thank you. We need you, Lord. We thank you for the great grace that you've given us. I thank you for physical strength and spiritual energy to stand here a third time and to preach your word. And I pray that you'll use this word in a way that inspires your people, transforms them, and grows them. I pray that you'll do this for your glory, for the good of 
your people and for the growth of the church. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said amen.